All right. Well, I'm excited. Uh, we are going to launch into a brand new series here this morning. And I think everything that I talk about is like my most exciting sermon I've ever preached, but I'm really excited about this one here today. It's like uh, sharing a scripture. Oh, this is my favorite scripture, and it's a different one every week. So, But God is good, and I felt he's given me some things here that I am so excited to share with us. So let's ask a blessing on the word, and we'll jump right in. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you already that your presence is the center, that we don't, we don't surround ourselves around a sermon. On Sunday mornings, it's about your presence. And all that we've done so far this morning with our children, with communion, with worship, with testimony. Thank you, Father, that we are putting you at the center of it all. And now as we dive into a new series and we talk about the great things uh, that you want to do in and through us, we ask your blessing that you would speak individually to every single person here. Go before us now. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, There's a pastor out in Los Angeles that I absolutely love. His name is Erwin McManus, and he wrote a book. It's one of the top five books, I would say, um, that I've enjoyed in the last 20 years. And the book is called The Artisan's Soul. And what he does is, is he puts together creativity with the kingdom of God and tries to bring out creatives, people who are creative and they don't think that they're creative, and allow them to have the freedom to use that in the church. And he's uh, one of those people that doesn't like to just be caught in the church world, but he loves to dabble into uh, other things in the world, like the arts and the movies and Hollywood, and to have an impact of Jesus in those areas. And one area that he likes to do that in is TED, you know, uh, technology, education, and design. And, you know, we've all heard of the TED Talks. And years ago, probably 12, 14 years ago, he was dying to be involved in one of the events at TED. And if you don't know, you have to apply to go to TED. You got to be a guru or a genius or something, you know, spend your life studying one particular species or whatever to be involved in this community. And he would apply and get denied and applied and get denied. So finally, he said, well, there's a TEDx event in Tanzania. And he's like, I don't think there's a whole lot of applicants for Tanzania. And so he applied and he actually got in. And he's a natural introvert. You know, he's scared of crowds and so forth, which is remarkable for a pastor to be afraid of people. But he's there. He's on the phone with his children halfway across the world in in a fellowship hall type of an area where they're about to have a community lunch. And he's in the corner and he's getting coached by his kids. And the kids are like, Dad, don't look at the ground. Look at people. Smile. You know, go talk to somebody. They're coaching him through this. So he gets in line for his food and he gets his food. He looks around kind of like you're in middle school on the first day and you're a new student. You have no idea where to sit. And he's looking around, he sees this little old lady, she's sitting by herself, and they have these round tables of about eight chairs, and so he goes up to her and says, I I see that you're sitting by yourself, I don't have anybody to have lunch with, Um, could I have lunch with you? She says, absolutely. So he sits down, and the moment that he sits down, immediately seven other people come and sit down next to him. And they don't say anything. He's just having this conversation with this lady, and they don't say a word. They're just all watching and eating, and he's like, wow, I must be riveting. I must be very, uh, you know, interesting at this moment. And so he's trying to bring up all kinds of stuff, you know, socioeconomic issues. And she goes, wow, did you know that um, chimpanzees have socioeconomic systems? Oh, that's fascinating. Oh, you know, what's your thoughts right now on all the political changes happening in America? Did you know that um, chimpanzees actually have political systems? I didn't know that. And she kept bringing up anything that he would talk about. She kept bringing it back to chimpanzees. And so he says, Jane, can can I interrupt you for a second? 
says, are you Jane Goodall, the lady about the gorillas? He's like, of course I am. He's like, that would make sense in all the chimpanzee talk. And, and he, he talked about how he felt discouraged because this woman has spent her life studying primates. And that there's people there who have studied the migration of one bee all across the world. And, and they just, they've studied their whole lives on one species of flower. And he's like, I don't have a species. I'm a pastor. And then it dawned on him, I do have a species, and that's the children of God, the human species. And he devoted his life to being able to not uh, spread the gospel and evangelize, but to also awaken people who are lacking in creativity or feel I'm not creative enough. And, and I love that story, but the first thing I thought of when I read it in his book was, man, this lady's obsessed with monkeys. <laughs> She's obsessed. And, and of course, I'm the preacher, so I use anything for a story for, for the pulpit. I said, what if God's people were as obsessed with the kingdom of God as that woman was with monkeys? Something as inferior as just an animal. What if God's people were just as obsessed with the kingdom of God? You know, John Wesley, he once said, give me 100 men who hate nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and we can change the world in a single generation. People who are, are solely into and fully focused on the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And so today I want to launch into a brand new series, four-part series in the month of August on the kingdom of God. You know, last month we discovered our identity. We talked about we are children of God, that we are made up in spirit, soul, and body. We talked about we have authority. We talked about that God loves us and that the enemy really, really, really wants to make us doubt who we are in God. So last week was all about who we are in Jesus, but this month I want to focus on what we have in Jesus and define what the kingdom of God is, what our role is in the kingdom of God, our authority and dominion in the kingdom, and then look at the marriage of faith and grace and how that plays out in our day-to-day -day lives. And I'm excited. Talking about the kingdom and spiritual warfare are probably my two favorite topics in all of, of Christianity uh, to preach on. But Jesus was very clear on expressing the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ, if you didn't know this, is perfect theology. Everything that Jesus did is perfect theology, and he so talked about the kingdom of God. And in the famous scripture, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, and he said this wonderful line, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you didn't know it, you are part of the kingdom of God, and you have an assignment as ambassadors of Christ, as co-laborers of God, to bring the realities of heaven into the realities of this world. You and I are called to be partners with God to unleash and express the realities of heaven here in our day-to-day -day and where we're living. Heaven's already begun. And in heaven, there's no sickness, there's no sorrow, there's no separation, there's no shame. It is just pure intimacy with God where we are completely free. And Jesus came to this world to impact the systems of this world, the inferior with the superior, which is the kingdom of God. And you and I have the same assignment. He said, go, therefore. He gave us authority. He gave us dominion. And because we are wall-to-wall -wall Holy Spirit and have power from on high, the same power that raised Christ from the dead living in us, we have the privilege of expressing God's love and his power all around us. But see, you and I are part of this kingdom, but the problems that many of us have forgotten, that God is with us, that he is supreme, we have forgotten that we win. I got good news for you guys this morning. Did you know that we win? Have you, have you guys ever read this Bible? I don't know if you've read it. I've read it a lot, and it says that we win. <laughs> it says that Jesus came and he died for our sins and completely made us righteous, that he rendered the devil powerless, that he's going to come back one day for his bride, the church. We win. 
But how dare we forget? How is it that we can be so caught up with doubt that we become so discouraged that we don't do our assignment? See, our destination, every single one of us are going to die one day, and our destination is to go to heaven. But our assignment while we're still alive is to bring heaven here and to see those realities become accessible to each and every one of us. But we win. And the the good news is that we are on the winning side. How cool is that? Can you imagine being on a football team and knowing you're going to win? It's like Tom Brady. I can't stand him. I pray for his salvation, but I never want to have lunch with him. Um, He was a cheater on the Patriots, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, I saw a video of Tom Brady this past week, okay? I saw this video, and, you know, he wins everything. You just don't like people that always win. But anyway, he has his football, and he throws it to those spinning wheels, you know, where you put a football, and it launches it several, you know, 100 yards, and you put the football in there, and it shoots out. This guy, he took the football, and he threw it, and it got stuck in the wheels and popped back out at him. He was playing catch with himself. Finally, he threw it so laser-like and so strong, it got stuck and stopped the wheels. So, you know, it's like, uh, I mean, and the running joke is that if you want to see Tom Brady stop um, winning, you just make him be a part of the Dallas Cowboys. That's the, the joke. <laughs> I was like, I didn't say it. I didn't say it. It's on the internet. I didn't say this. But most, <laughs> most rookies, most rookies, if they know they're going to be on Tom Brady's team, they know they're going to win. Sorry, it's just science at this point. They're going to win. But more so than something as insignificant as sports, we are in the kingdom of God, and we know that God is on our side. God is on our team, and that we're on his team, and that we will win. And there's a story in the Old Testament that I love so much. And if you have your Bible, go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to read the first five verses. As always, I'm reading out of the New American Standard. This is a story about the Ark of the Covenant of God being captured. Now, the Ark with many of us know, was the very manifest presence of God. It was where the Israelites in the Old Testament carried the presence of God with the tabernacle from place to place and ultimately into the temple of God. But here the Philistines, in 1 Samuel chapter 5, we see the Philistines are trying to capture the glory of God, which is a hilarious thing. So if you're there, verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 5 says, Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now, again, it's just amazing that the enemy captured the presence of God. Now, back in those days, God's presence was housed in a, in a golden box with the, the Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod and some manna. It was in there. The, the presence of God was housed. But today, God's presence is within the hearts of, of his children. And the enemy to this day is still after the glory of God. He can care less about you, about what you can accomplish. He doesn't care about your rights. He doesn't care about your healing. The enemy wants to take the glory of God manifested through you. And each and every day, if he can't trip you up by getting you to doubt your identity, he's going to try to take the glory of God away from you. we got to be on guard. Verse 2, the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Dagon was a false god, and they set up a statue, an image, and built him a temple. Uh, He was the god of the crops. Now, we have money, we have jobs, we have bank accounts, but back then they had crops, and that was currency, that was uh, their well-being, that was what, what their lifestyle was all about. So you can imagine if your heart is all about, I need my crops to be well, I need, I need my fields to really grow, I need money, I can't have a storm come, you want your crops to be protected. So of course, the enemy wants to set up where our fears and our affections are and set up a God in which we can worship those fears. And today, we got to be careful what we fear, because what we fear, we can worship. 
And so they set up this false god and they put the, they said, well, we got one false god. Now we, we captured somebody else's god. Let's put that god next to our god. And they put the, they put the Ark of the Covenant next to Dagon, all right? Let's continue here. Um, verse 3, when the Ashdodites arose early in the, the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him up in his place again. So they put the Ark of the Covenant there. They go to sleep. They wake up the next morning, come into the temple, and their God had fallen down on their face. Isn't that funny? Like, oh, my God, um, here, let me help you out. Poor, poor God, you fell over. Let me, let me set you back up. It's sad when, when your God needs your, your help to be God. <laughs> they set him back up. Now, what's interesting here is that it says that Dagon fell before the ark of God. Now, if they put the ark next to Dagon, I would assume he would fall flat on his face forward. But it doesn't say that in the scripture. It says that he fell before the ark. Before. So he's prostrate. Dagon is prostrate before the ark of God. And this is what's so amazing. They brought the presence of God into Dagon's temple. But how many know that when you bring the presence of God anywhere, the presence of God becomes supreme. And now that temple of Dagon became the temple of God. Because where the presence of God is, there can be no darkness. There can be no evil. There can be no sin. And so Dagon had to bow before him. In verse 4, but when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both palms of his hands were cut off from the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So the second time he fell down, Dagon broke. And what broke off of him were the hands and the head. And symbolically, I'm always looking for the prophetic symbolism in the scriptures. Symbolically, when your head comes off, that means your way of thinking and intellect and religion must go. Why was it that John the Baptist, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, was beheaded? Because the old covenant, the old way of thinking, the old way of reasoning had to go in order for the new covenant to come. And so Dagon's head came off and said that way of thinking needs to be gone. And his hands were cut off. Hands are always a symbol of work and performance. It says, no, that needs to be gone. It's not what we can do to work and earn our way to God. It's God's presence who wants to be with us. We are on the winning side, and God always wins. When I was about 16 or 17 years old, I went with a really good friend of mine and his family to Sequoia National Park in Northern California. And there they have wonderful rivers and lakes, and it's just gorgeous up there with redwoods and sequoias and beautiful place. But they took me to Crystal Cave. Have you guys ever heard of this cave before? It's a giant cave about two and a half miles deep. It stays at a constant 48 degrees, which I wish that technology was in my house. I would love my house to be at a constant 48 degrees. That's wonderful. I love sweaters and blankets, and especially on a hot day like today. But I remember going two and a half miles deep into this cave, and we sat in a big room inside of a mountain that was about five times as big as this sanctuary. And all the people on this hour-long tour were huddled around on this bench that was, you know, carved out of rock. And we're sitting there, and he goes, okay, I need everybody to sit down. Don't move. I'm going to turn the lights off inside of this cave. Don't move. You will hurt yourself if you try to move. And he turned off all the lights. And when I talk about a piercing darkness, oh, my gosh. Have you ever been in a place that was so dark you can feel it? Or you couldn't see your hand in front of your face? I was like, whoa. And then the tour guy said, I need a volunteer. Does somebody have a digital watch? Not an Apple watch. We all remember those old Casios with that, that very dim yellow light. I need somebody with the, with the wristwatch light. 
So one little boy volunteers, and he pushes that little watch light. I mean, you know how dinky that little light is. It illuminated the room five times as big as this room, that one tiny little light. It didn't matter how powerful the darkness was, how strong the darkness was, how deep the darkness was, light always wins. You don't walk into a dark room, hit the switch, and you see this battle between dark and light. Darkness must always bow to the light, and you and I are on the winning side in the kingdom of God where his light always wins against the darkness if we choose to partner and agree with all he says about us and of his kingdom. So I want to encourage you this morning on a few things. If you're taking notes, it's not in your your bulletins, but please write these down. The first is that the keys of the kingdom have been given to mankind. The keys of the kingdom of God have been given to mankind. The keys. I'm going to explain that in just a second, but I may have shared this testimony before, but I want to illustrate how powerful God can use a Christian on day one of their journey. I was a youth pastor about 2009, and we were about to go on what we call a treasure hunt. That's where we get in the parking lot at the church. We go around and hold hands and pray. We say, God, lead us somewhere. We want to go somewhere and minister to people supernaturally and beyond. So we pray, and then we all kind of get a sense of where do we want to go? To the Walmart strip center or wherever we want to go. And as we were doing that, one of my newest students, I don't even know if he was saved yet or not, he comes walking uh, through the parking lot. He's just walking home from school. And he comes into the parking lot, and he says, what are you guys doing? I said, oh, well, we're just praying, and we're going to see where God wants us to go, lay hands on the sick, and minister to people, and spread the gospel. And to my shock, he goes, cool, can I come? I said, do you want to come with us to go pray for strangers? He goes, yeah. How can you say no to something like that? And so I said, all right. And so we all get in our carpools, and I put him on the front seat of my car, and I'm literally teaching this kid how to prophesy and pray for the sick on our way to go pray for the sick. It's incredible. And so he's like soaking all this in. He goes, okay, so you kind of, whatever drops in your heart, you kind of go with. I'm like, eh, no. And I'm trying to teach him and train him. He goes, okay. And he sees a street sign called Brooklyn. He goes, I'm going to go look for a little girl named Brooklyn and pray for her. And I was going to say, eh, you know, and then I said, hmm, let's see. <laughs> let's find out what happens. And so we, we ended up at a, at a Walmart super center, you know, with multiple little mom and pop shops everywhere. And we spread up, spread out, and we start going and, and praying for people. And then all of a sudden, I see all of our peoples, our adult leaders and our students gathered around one place. And of course, I want to go find out what's going on. And I head on over there. Here's a student I just trained laying hands on a Hispanic family with a little two-year-old girl named Brooklyn who's about to go into surgery that week. I'm telling you, Pastor Phil, if you're watching, I know you're 90 years old and you've been a pastor and a Christian for a very long time, but a little eight-year-old kid can get saved and have the same authority, the same power, the same keys to the kingdom as Pastor Phil does at 90 years old. You have all the authority on day one as a Christian if we choose to believe what God says about us. See, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Sometimes your disqualification is what qualifies you to walk into the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God, it says it's received like a child and having that type of faith. But the kingdom, I know I haven't explained what the kingdom is just yet, And my explanation of the kingdom is simply kingdom, king's domain. It is the rulership, the government of God. Kingdom means the king's domain. And that's why we see when God told Adam and Eve, he wants to give dominion to them. So the keys of the kingdom, what happens here is that Adam and Eve were created. And God said, here's heaven on earth, basically, and this paradise called Eden. And I'm giving you authority. He said, be fruitful and multiply, take dominion. Adam and Eve's job was to take the power and the love of God, his kingdom, and spread it until it covered the entire earth. We all know they failed, 
And when they failed, they welcomed spiritual death and the influence of the enemies. So symbolically, they had the keys of the kingdom of God. And when the enemy came and they sinned, they handed those keys over to the enemy. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see the damage of when the enemy had power. But praise God, and what we celebrate in communion, Jesus Christ came. He died for our sin. He rendered the devil powerless, and he took back the keys once and for all. And then in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, it says that he gives us the keys of the kingdom of God. And he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And I love in the New American Standard Version, it says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. It's past tense, meaning you're fully loaded. You have all that you need on day one. We have been given the keys of the kingdom, and our job still remains the same, that we are to expand God's kingdom, express his love and his power, and continue to influence this world and all inferior kingdoms with the superior kingdom, the kingdom of God. And know that when we have the keys of the kingdom, it's not just for you. I know we we love to think that, oh, God's blessings are showering down upon me, and I'm so filled with this love. That's great. If it frees you, if it heals you, if it sets you on fire, give it away. It's not just for you. You have the keys not just for your own entrance into the goodness of God. You have the keys to lead others into this kingdom that has so radically transformed our lives. So the keys of the kingdom have been given to mankind. Number two, we must stay kingdom-minded. We must stay kingdom-minded, focused on the kingdom at all times. So I know it looks like I am fluent in Spanish. I am not. Uh, I was when I was in first grade and Uh, my dad didn't want to speak Spanish in the house. He wanted to be immersed in English and learn English. So I kind of lost it along the way. And recently, God has been putting this holy discontent in my heart. I'm struggling speaking to my neighbors. I'm I'm struggling speaking to my my landscapers who also have helped us uh, cut our grass while um, our mowers in the shop. I'm like, I just want to be able to talk to them in their language and I'm like, more than that, I want to minister in Spanish. I want to reach the, the third of the 40,000 people in the city of Duncanville. A third are Hispanic. And I don't want them to be an untouched group. And if our church is here in this community, I want to reach them. And so I began this journey of learning how to speak Spanish again. And I, I signed up for online classes. And I even talked to uh, some about it. And he gave me the greatest advice in the world. He says, oh, you really want to learn Spanish? Watch Sesame Street in Spanish. I said, what? He's like, yeah. And so I started watching Sesame Street in Spanish. And it's the funniest thing in the world. When my son walks by my, my room and he hears, la, 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 la. Hola, amigos, soy Elmo. You know, he's like, dad, what are you doing in there? I was like, watching Sesame Street. What else would I be doing, right? <laughs> and I'm learning just the little elements like a child would learn a new language. And, uh, but I wanted to take it a step further. I wanted to take it a step further. And so every night, I listen to a Pentecostal preacher in Spanish. I want to hear how they talk and how they move in Spanish and, and learning words like avivamento, revival in Spanish. And did you know the word for usher in Spanish, like ushers and greeters? is colaboradores. <laughs> colaboradores. That is a, that's a big word for ushers, right? And then, you know, this is my Bible, but I bought a Spanish Bible for the first time in my 20 years in ministry. I bought a Spanish Bible, and now every morning in my personal Bible time, I read the Bible in Spanish. And I have a big yellow highlighter, and I highlight the words that I don't know. A lot of them are big Christian words that I don't know. Then I have an app, and I translate it and hear the pronunciation. Basically, from the time I wake up to the time I go to sleep, in the spirit, I want to learn Spanish on all areas that I can. I want to be fully immersed. And in the same way, we must stay kingdom-minded. When you wake up, what is my assignment today, God? 
When you go to a restaurant, is there somebody I can pray for? When you're going down the street, you know, a lot of the times when I'm driving, I'm like, oh, what's a monitor? Have you ever heard of a blinker? And my wife is always quick to remind me, what if their, their mom has been rushed to the hospital and they're racing and they're nervous and they forgot their blinker? You should probably pray for them, pastor. <laughs> she always gets me. She always gets me. Kingdom-minded as we're driving down the streets of Dallas, praise the Lord, do we ever need the grace of Jesus while we're driving in Dallas? But wherever we are at, I heard a big amen on that one. Wherever we're at in life, are we focused on the kingdom? Jesus, at a young age, at only 12, said, I must be about my father's business. And Jesus was always focused on on the kingdom at hand. The kingdom of heaven has come upon you. We must stay kingdom-minded. And finally, this last thing here, not only do we have the keys of the kingdom given to all mankind, not only must we stay kingdom-minded, but the kingdom must be manifested. The kingdom must be manifested. You and I are distributors of God's dominion. You and I are distributors. We, we can express and release kingdom realities into this world. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus says that if I cast out a demon by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of heaven has come near. It is this tension, this invasion of the superior kingdom of God invading the inferior kingdoms and systems and governments of this world. And you and I, again, have the privilege of partnering with God. And not only is it we are privileged to work with God, it's commanded. It's commanded. Anything that Jesus told his disciples, guess what? You and I are commanded to do as well. In Matthew 10, verse 7, he says, wherever you go preach, the kingdom of God is at hand. Then in verse 8, right after that, he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. It's a commandment. And you and I have not only the privilege, but we have the, the assignment to take all that God has given to us and to lovingly release it into this world and watch what he can do in and through a willing servant. <clears throat> Losing my voice, praise the Lord. Um, let me close with this final testimony, and then we'll pray and be dismissed here this morning. Uh, there's a good friend of mine who is an evangelist, travels all over the place. He's in Dallas a lot, preaching at CFNI. Uh, he preaches at Trinity. He, he preaches at conferences all around the world. Great evangelist. Uh, he's also an author with some pretty incredible books. And my favorite is a book called I Am Your Sign. I Am Your Sign. And he opens that book, which the intro story is the reason for the title of the book. He was in Monterey, California, and he was leading a church there, uh, um, preaching at a guest speaker at a church. And they leave that morning service and they go with the pastor and several friends out to lunch, which is a great holy thing to do after church, just go eat. And after lunch, they're in this old town, Monterey, you know, beach city, and they're having to walk blocks back to where they parked because it's not parking structures. You park on the street. And as he's walking, he passes by a new age store. In New Age, a lot of coastal cities have, you know, uh, New Age, mysticism, you know, the occult, all kinds of crazy stuff, uh, spiritual readers and tarot cards and all that. So he's walking by uh, this occultish New Age bookstore, and he feels like somebody took a two-by-four and just smashed him right in the chest. And he goes, man, I've walked by several bookstores before. It never bothered me. You know, Barnes & Nobles has a whole occultic section, and I go in there all the time. Why all of a sudden do I feel this? And so he paused, and what he was doing, kingdom-minded, and he looked inside of the, the store, and he saw that they had a guest author who had written books on reading tarot cards, and she was doing spiritual readings for people there. So that's what he felt. He felt that darkness. He felt that oppression. Then he heard God say, I want you to go in there. 
And I don't know if you've been done with church, you're already finished eating, you're ready for that Sunday afternoon nap, but he felt annoyed. He didn't want to go in there. He didn't want to go in there, but he wanted to be obedient. So he walks in, and he walks in thinking he's going to go up to this fortune teller and rebuke her and cast a demon out, deliverance ministry. But he goes in there and he says, hey, miss, um, do you have a moment? I would love to talk with you. And she looks at him, this African-American skinny guy, and not her normal-looking clientele, and she kind of gets excited. She says, oh, I can probably squeeze you in in about 10 minutes. It's like, okay. So he takes 10 minutes and kind of just walking around the store waiting for his opportunity. And he's glad he had those 10 minutes because the Lord began to work on his heart. He says, I want you to hate that demon, but you love that woman. And he says, I have a word that I need you to deliver to her. And the, the Lord spoke to his heart and said, I need you to walk up to her and say, I am your sign. Then I want you to tell her that if she will give up reading these cards and walking in the occult, that I will give her the dream she had at a little girl. He goes, okay. So he walks up to her. She, she motions him over, sits down. And before they begin, he asks her a question. And he says, hey, can I ask you, how do you interpret these things, these cards? She goes, oh, well, you project your consciousness to the universe. And he was confused by the time she was done explaining it. He says, well, can I, can I tell you how I connect with the spirit realm? She says, sure. She says, well, I really think that there's really only two doors. The first door you can just mark as other. That's kind of the door you walk through and others do and the demonic and other things. And there's another door called Jesus. And the minute he said Jesus, she sat back and he's like, oh, I lost her. I lost her. And he goes, and this Jesus, he actually spoke to me to give you a word. Can I give you a word? And she kind of leans in a little bit. She's like, sure. He goes, the Lord told me to tell you today that I am your sign. And her eyes look like deer in a headlight. She's like, really? He goes, you had a dream as a little girl, but somehow you got involved with an Eastern guru who abused you on every level that he could abuse you. And now what you're doing today is but a default. You're doing this by default, but it's not your dream. And if you will let go of this, God said he will give you the dream that you had in your heart as a little girl. And at this point, she's bawling. In the middle of a, a cultic new age bookshop with everybody in line to see this author bawling. So he grabs her hands and he looks over. And before he sat down, he noticed that she turned over a tarot card and it was the devil card. And the devil card is like a joker in a deck of cards. They don't come up very often. And so you see how the devil wants to continue to, to be involved and interfere with things. And Sean takes that and he flips it over. And right there in the middle of that store, he leads this psychic card reader to the Lord, and she accepts him as Jesus in her heart. Isn't that incredible? Now, this is a story, and we don't hear about these stories too often, but it just goes to show us the power of a person who believes that I have the kingdom of God within me, his love, his power, his grace, the, the saving grace of Jesus Christ and his blood only, and to walk by in an afternoon when he's already feeling inconvenienced, and to say, I will obey and I will be so kingdom-minded as to take the superior kingdom of God and let it impact the inferior kingdom of the enemy. And we saw a great thing happen in that day. Family, you and I can do the same thing. Whether that's a miracle that happens in our own family, getting a, an, an awesome job that pays better than we had before, seeing somebody miraculously healed, seeing a, a heart that was once turned and hardened towards God be softened and sensitive and come back to his grace. We can see incredible things happen, but what I know about my Lord is that he loves using people. He created the world, but put Adam and Eve. He created the law, but put Moses. And even to save the world of their sins, he used his son in the form of a man to come into our world. God loves using people to express his kingdom. 
And I challenge you and I dare you to allow yourself to be humble and obedient to when he calls and to watch that he can do some crazy things in and through you if you will dare to risk. So Father, I thank you so much for your word here this morning. Thank you, God, that we are on the winning side. Thank you that we have a hope that is above anything else. Thank you that we have a strength found only in you. For my brothers and sisters here, God, there's so many of us in this room who are licensed ministers, evangelists, missionaries. Father, regardless of our background, our mistakes, and our failures, you want to use us any opportunity where we will allow. And so I pray, God, that you would stir up hearts here today. I pray that you would fill hearts with hope, with fresh perspective, with boldness. In the name of Jesus, I impart and I declare right now a supernatural faith and boldness that comes through from the book of Acts in which your cowardly disciples who once forsook you, Jesus, turned into fire-breathing world changers because of the power of the Holy Spirit. May that be so with us here this week. May you fill us, God, with a newfound boldness. May we find your face like we have never found before. And help us, God, to be an expression and an extension of your love and your kingdom. Go before us this week. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen. Love you all. Have a wonderful week.